Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 25 to 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Who is, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Father, we ask now that you would clear our minds and our hearts to receive the truth as it is taught to us here in your word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, last week as we were listening to Solomon, we learned that he has not been able to uh, reach all the understanding and understanding he would want when it came to wisdom. All this I have tested by wisdom, he said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. He couldn't grasp it all. It was far off. It was deep, he says, very deep. Who can find it out? And this realization that drives Solomon to consider further the character of mankind and of reality. He may have admitted that, that, that wisdom was deep for anyone to get to the bottom of it, too deep for that, but he, he keeps looking anyway. He keeps striving. Look at verse 25. I turned my heart. Another translation, I directed my mind, and literally it reads, I and my heart looked around. And so he, he joins with his heart, as it were, and he, he directs his mind to do what? It, it says here, to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Did you hear it? To know, to, to search out, to seek. You get the intensity of it all. His, his great intellect that Solomon has is striving to make sense of something. He wants to understand it. This wasn't some side activity that he, he decided to fill up his spare time with. No, he, he was consumed by this. He wants to know. And what he seeks to know first is wisdom and the scheme of things. Uh, now that, that phrase, the scheme of things, is a mathematical phrase. It means the sum total. Solomon wants the kind of wisdom that makes sense of the whole of reality. That's the first thing he seeks to know. And second, he wants to know the opposite of wisdom. He says he wants to know and search out and seek the sum total of the wickedness and delusion of foolishness. To know the wickedness of folly, he writes, and the foolishness that is madness. See, if God made everything suitable for its time, Solomon now is wrestling with why does wickedness even exist? 
And, and, and how now does it fit into the scheme of things, to the, the sum of things? Basically, he wants to understand the difference between the wise way and the foolish way to live. And, and he wants to understand how all of it fits together. And it's a noble task. It's an it's a enormous task, in fact. You'd probably say that it's an impossible task. It's surely difficult for him to do this. And yet he is determined to. And so he sets out on his journey, and he goes about his quest. And as he does, he discovers, uh, he, 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 he finds, you could say, four things. First, verse 26, he found the great temptation of wick- wickedness. Second, verse 27, in the beginning of verse 28, he found that he could not find the sum of things. Third, at the end of verse 28, he found virtually no upright people. And fourth, in verse 29, he found that God made man upright, but that human beings are schemers. And we're going to look at those four things. Now, as we begin, we need to realize something here, that Solomon is on his own quest here, and he's providing for us in that quest his own personal testimony. These are the things he found as he turned his heart to know and to search out and seek. It's his own personal experience that he's describing here, and you'll see why I point that out in in just a second. Well, with that in mind, let's see what Solomon found. First, he found the great temptation of wickedness. Look at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, there are several different interpretations here in this of this verse. One says that what Solomon is describing is that because of sin, married life will be a war instead of joy. He, he, he grants that God, uh, that God grants a loving wife rather than a human trap, snares and nets, to a righteous man, but none are righteous, Solomon's going to go on to say. And so this man believes, whoever this interpreter was, believes that Solomon is addressing the, the conflict that happens in marriage, ask Taylor and Ellen. They just got back, and they'll tell you. No, I don't know that for sure, but, but that, that's what it's speaking of. That's one interpretation. Others say he's just personifying the folly of a woman as a woman, that it, kind of like he's personifying it, folly, and he, he's referring to, to this as a woman. The woman folly does that in Proverbs chapter 9, he says there. In verse 25, he just mentioned wickedness and folly, and now he personifies them. Uh, Thus, this woman is an image of folly itself. Well, another interpretation says he's talking about a particular type of woman, but she is a real woman. This would be similar to what we find in Proverbs 2, where he warns his son of this forbidden woman, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. And so what this interpreter is saying is that Solomon is talking about a real woman, a wicked woman, but it's a woman nonetheless. And so I'm torn on the correct understanding of what this is, but it seems to me that Solomon is saying falling into the hands of folly and wickedness is a bad thing, and a good example of this is a seductive woman. And see, Solomon knew something about seductive women. We read about it in 1 Kings 11. Remember, he had 700 wives, 
who were princes, and 300 concubines. And this is what it says in his relationship with these seductive women. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as his father David was. And so these women turn his heart, and now as Solomon turns his heart to consider wickedness and folly, he's thinking of these uh, women. Uh, this isn't the, uh, the ramblings of a misogynist. He just all hates all women. By the way, when I first preached this at another church, it was on Mother's Day. <laughs> and I kept it, and I preached it. We, we, we just read uh, Psalms and Proverbs, all of Ecclesiastes, not to mention Song of Solomon, and you'll see that there's many positive things Solomon says about women. And so he's not saying all women are like this, but some of them are. Some of them are snares. They imprison a man. They trap a man and lead him into all manner of wickedness, which is exactly what happened to Solomon. That's why it's important to understand he's given his personal testimony. His heart was turned towards wickedness and was led to folly. And and this warning here is kind of open-ended, so it can be applied to many situations in life. But one of the most obvious, is what Dr. Riken points out, is by turning away from the seductions of sexual sin, including the temptations that come from television or over the computer. He says people call it virtual reality, but the danger is actual. And so when tempted sexually, for example, rather than being lured in, remember uh, this seduction is a trap and it will only lead to wickedness. It's only going to lead to folly. To give in, and this is Solomon's experience, as Solomon found out, will only lead to a life that is more bitter than death. And and see, that one example opens the door to many applications once you understand the, the premise here. Something attracts you. You have a desire for it, and and you have a desire for it because it gives you an initial benefit. You know, the things that we, we, when we commit sins or or lord into things, it's not because, man, I'm going to hate doing this. That's not how it works. It's like, that looks good. I'm going to love doing this, and then you become addicted, and that leads to bitterness and death. Taking drugs is a good example. It seems okay at first. It it fixes some problems. It may make you feel good. But what happens? Before long, you become addicted. Uh, Watching pornography may seem rather innocent, but soon it becomes an addiction. Gambling may seem fun, especially if you win once. But if you're not careful, what happens? Before long, you can lose everything. You like falling into a black hole. He says a black hole gradually sucks in and destroys everything that comes within range. Once something is caught, there's no escape possible. Well, wickedness, he says, in this world has a similar fatal attraction. And so what Solomon's doing here is in sharing that is that he's saying, flee, flee. Flee this wickedness. Flee folly. And he does so by warning us of his own experience from what he found about the great temptation of wickedness. He's saying, look, I know it's alluring, And it's also deceptive, and it can drag you in. That's the first thing. Second, verse 27, the beginning of verse 28, he found that he could not find the scheme of things. 
Look at verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. And so ironically, what Solomon found here is that he didn't find something. The scheme of things are the sum of things. Remember earlier I said, basically Solomon added one thing to another like an accountant to find the principles here that that govern all of life. He was not content to simply repeat what others have tried. He wanted to venture out. He tried new forms to try to come to his own conclusions and, and the basis of things which he himself observed. And he wanted to try to get them to fit together. Think of the things that Solomon has observed so far. I mean, we could go all the way back. We won't. We'll just go back to here in chapter 7. He has observed what he saw, what we saw, or that sometimes the wicked prosper, right? He's observed this, and the righteous end up suffering. It didn't make sense. He doesn't understand it. He has observed, again, as we saw in chapter 7, that both the wicked and the righteous perish together. He's observed, as we just learned, that wickedness can destroy and make life more bitter than death. And as he's observed this, these things, he's tried to understand how they fit into the sum of things. He, he says that his mind sought it repeatedly. He, he's tried to figure out how do all these things fit together, but I have not found, he says. Not even Solomon, with all his vast wisdom, can find the sum of things. He, he cannot make sense of these paradoxical things in our world. Last week, we learned he, he can't understand why bad things happen to, quote, good people. He just does not know. He, he can't find the answer. All he knows is that there is a wickedness that destroys, and only God knows why that's the case. And so what he finds is what he did not find. He did not find the scheme of things. Third, the end of, the end of verse 28, he found virtually no upright people. He says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, these verses doesn't tell us what he's looking for, but when understood in the context of verse 29, we learn that Solomon was searching for, for upright people. And among a thousand of these people, he found only one righteous man, and he found no righteous women. Again, a great Mother's Day message. He, he, he's not being a chauvinist, no. He's not saying there are no righteous women any more than he's saying there's only one righteous man. Uh, remember, he is studying this and understanding this in his own experience. In verse 20, he already said, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So everybody's a sinner. But more than this, we need to remember that Solomon is addressing that personal experience. One preacher said, Solomon is not telling us about all people everywhere, but is testifying to his own personal experience, which may say as much about him as it says about anyone else. See, Solomon knew some wise men, godly men. He knew the prophet Nathan. But as we learned and pointed out, he also knew some, uh, uh, some unrighteous women, Women that led him into idolatry and wickedness. Unbelieving women who worshiped foreign gods. And so is it any surprise that he could not find one who was righteous? Uh, he could only find one that was righteous, one righteous man, possibly Nathan, and no righteous women among his thousand wives. And so that's the context of it. And Solomon's search for an upright person leads him to his final discovery. 
verse 29, he found that God made man upright, but that the human being, that human beings are schemers. Look at verse 29. See, this alone I found. I've tried to find other things. You've heard what I found, but this alone is what I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It's when Solomon says, this alone I found, he's saying that this is the single point in all of his searching. This is the most important uh, point that I'm making. This is of prime importance. It has all led to this conclusion, he's saying, God made both man and women upright. Clearly, Solomon is referring to the creation story, right? You have Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let's make man in our own image. We know this, after our likeness. And after he did that, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then verse 20, 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis says, and God saw everything that he had made, everything, man and woman. Behold, it was very good. God made man upright. And so it begs the question, how is it that we see so much wickedness and folly in this world and, and see so few upright people? And he answers that question in verse 29. They have sought out many schemes. Now, this is a play on words. It's a play on the words, the scheme of things. What he's saying is, I've tried to find the scheme of things, but all I found is that human beings are schemers. And and see, Solomon has turned now away from Genesis chapter 1, and he's moved to Genesis chapter 3 and following, and Adam and Eve fall for the first scheme that was given to them by the serpent uh, to be like God and wise. It was a scheme. It was a lie, and the scheme failed, and instead of becoming wise, they acquired the knowledge of good and evil and experienced the bitter evil of pain and suffering and separation and sin and death. After that, people schemed to control their destiny by building a city and developing agriculture, art, and technology. This is Genesis 4. And that scheme also failed. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5. What's that refer to? The flood. And God destroyed that. That the word thought, that, that the word thoughts there when it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness in him was great on the earth and every inclination of the thoughts, that word is a similar root as the word scheme here in Ecclesiastes. That man was scheming, but it failed and God brought the flood. And we could go on. And you have the Tower of Babel and how that scheme failed and God confused them with languages. And then we could talk about Abraham's scheme to do what? He wanted to lie to Pharaoh and, or Jacob's scheme to, to steal uh, his brother's birthright. Uh, or what about the brothers of Joseph who schemed to have him killed and, and, and taken into slavery? Man is a schemer. One scheme after another. We see it throughout Scripture. Even in the time of Israel's prophets, Isaiah had to admit this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned our own way. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is the conclusion Solomon's quest led him to. He, he's saying, as I look around, as I, as I try to figure out, man's heart is depraved. Man's heart is depraved. But possibly, 
the most important discovery as he, he tried to search out the scheme of things is that when he at this one time says that man is heart is depraved, he also says that God is not to blame for the wickedness to be seen in this world. He made man upright. But they deliberately devised many schemes that led to the bitterness of wickedness and folly and ultimately bitterness of death. You see, as disappointed as Solomon was with life in general, as he looked around and just said, nothing gives meaning, his biggest disappointment was other people. He couldn't blame God. God was not to blame. Other people were to blame Why? Because people disappoint us. People let us down. People lead us astray. All too often, uh, people serve as a detour from the path of wisdom, the same way his wives did for him. And the reason is because of what? The depravity of the heart. Now, there are two major teachings here in this passage. Uh, Two doctrines. The first is the original righteousness. We were created in God's image, and we were created good. And the second is the doctrine of original sin. Adam fell into sin, and as Adam was our representative, he brought all men and women into a state of sin and rebellion. This is the biblical doctrine of sin. The Apostle Paul put it this way. Sin came into the world through one man. You know who that man is? It's Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam's sin, when he sinned in the garden, was imputed to all of us. He's our federal head. He represented us. John Calvin compared Adam to a root that goes rotten and then ruins a whole tree. And that tree is the family tree of mankind. And so Solomon's words in verse 29 are are humbling. They're a humbling testimony to to universal and total corruption of the whole human race. Man is depraved from the heart. And this wasn't, I'm sure, I'm sure Solomon wasn't hoping to find this on his quest. But see, here's the truth. Once he discovered it and once he recognized it as true, you'd you'd only be wise to accept it and seek to understand it. If you don't discover this truth, and I, I would say generally speaking in our world today, one of the biggest issues is we deny this truth. Everybody's good. Everybody. You cannot be wise, though, if you deny this truth. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner by nature. From out of the heart flows all manner of corruption. You were born into this world a hater of God. You're born into this world opposed to his righteousness. You're born into this world a child of wrath. And so if that's the reality, we recognize our weakness then, that we're dead in sin, we need to consciously flee wickedness. And we need to deliberately seek wisdom. And, and, And then be able to do this in light of who we really are, even if we don't recognize it, because we have a tendency to compare ourselves to some others. 
And when we do that, well, we, look, we can look righteous at times. But the Scripture teaches that we're all depraved. And so we're going to need help from someone that's stronger. Someone who's walked through this and, and can be strength to us. Someone who's wiser than us that can help us through this. We're, we're going to need someone who's more upright than us, more holy than us, to help us through this. Otherwise, we're never going to escape this grip of wickedness and folly. You'll never be able to escape the prison of sin on your own. And so this is why we really need to go beyond Ecclesiastes if we're going to hear the good news. And I'm going to close with this, because up to this point, it's been pretty bad news. At that point, I probably said, Happy Mother's Day, (laughs) right? I, I mean, it's been bad news. See, Ecclesiastes 7 ends with the depravity of our hearts. It stops right there with the doctrine of sin. However, it does give us a hint that sin doesn't have the last word. Look, look at, again at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets. But then he says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. See, God has provided a way of, of escape from the grip of folly and wickedness. He's provided a way of escape from the grip of sin. He says, although this rebellious sinner will be trapped, the person who pleases God will find a way to flee. See, never say that, well, I just couldn't help it. I can't stop sinning. Always Believe that by the power of God, the Holy Spirit is the way to run when you have, where to run when you have temptation. What did Joseph do? He, 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 he was caught in, in, the, in the clutches of Potiphar's wife, and he fled her. And so we need to do that. However, the point I'm making here is that to please God, we, we, we must begin somewhere. I just said all of us here are born into this evil, uh, this world as evil, depraved sinners. And so something in our relationship with God has to change if we're gonna, if we're gonna please Him so that He can find, show us the way out of our sin. Psalm 5 4 says, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. That's not good news because we're wicked. With you, evil people are not welcome. That's not good news because we're evil. And, and so if by nature we are wicked and evil, something in our relationship must change, and you know how that happens. It, it's not something, it's someone, it's Jesus Christ. See, if I'm going to please God outside of myself, I need Jesus. If I'm going to be righteous outside of myself, I need Jesus. If I'm going to escape wickedness, if I'm going to escape folly, if I'm going to escape sin, ultimately, am I going to escape God's wrath? I need need, you need Jesus. See, Jesus Christ is the only man who ever remained totally upright and never fell into sin. And see, by virtue of his perfect life and atoning death, he offers to forgive you of all your wicked schemes, your your depraved heart. We talked about Adam. That he, he is our federal head, that, that, that when he sinned, we sinned. We, he represented us. It doesn't seem fair. It's the reality, though. 
Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the last Adam. It uses that terminology. In 1 Corinthians, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, was a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's 1 Corinthians 15. See, what happens is Jesus accomplished what Adam failed to do. A moment ago, I read to you, sin came into the world through one man. Who's that one man? Adam. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you see how it works? But... Paul says, for if many die through one man's trespass, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? He accomplishes it. For if because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Adam failed to be upright. And so we can't look to ourselves or even to him for our salvation. We look to Jesus. See, this is how it works. It's called the three imputations. I've mentioned this once or twice already. Adam's sin was imputed to us. That is true. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, let me continue. But if we have faith in Christ... He takes our sin upon himself. Our sin is then imputed to Jesus, and then he imputes us with his righteousness. That's the way of escape. Do you see what happens in that transaction? When God now looks down from heaven, he doesn't see someone who is wicked. If we're covered in the blood of Jesus, if we're clothed in his righteousness, he looks down and says, there's a righteous man because they belong to Jesus Christ. And now, now by his spirit, we can flee wickedness. See, it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you're not able, I'm not able to solve all the mysteries of the universe. We're not going to know why God does all the things that he does. It doesn't make sense. Why did he even allow sin in the first place? Why doesn't he just speak to me? Why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that? But there are some things we can know. At least we can be wise enough to know that we are depraved and that salvation and the way of escape only comes through Jesus Christ. That he's revealed to you. He'll answer all these questions in heaven. Well, everything will be answered in heaven because we'll know God and see him as he is and we'll understand. But now... In the midst of our wickedness, we can know life. We can know freedom because we know Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in, even in our depravity, even when we don't understand all that you do, even when we would, would hold a fist to you and say, why this, Lord? Why that? We are so grateful And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as our substitute. And so we give you praise. Amen.